January the 20th, 2019, lecture discussion number 50 on the book of Joel for the Internet audience. Uh, next week we're going to uh, take the day off because we cannot compete with Super Baal Zebub Day. And uh, our Baal Zebub, I guess would be more correct. We have learned in the past that that is a, a, a obstacle we cannot overcome. Okay. Perhaps it appears that we, by we, I mean you and those of us on, or those on the inter- internet, are mired in this inescapable mud uh, with, uh, of Acts 5 with no prospects of extraction. Extrication, I guess would be more correct. Ananias and Sapphira, uh, Acts 5 again, has our intrepid little band of travelers hopelessly trapped, and that seems to be the general opinion, immobilized, liberation is a mirage, the situation is bleak, it's hee-haw, gloom, despair, and agony on you. Now, that's where we are. But that's, uh, let me throw out my vast French vocabulary that I got in the junior high school. Au contraire, my grasshoppers. We're actually very near to victory. Thank MacArthur. Of course, near is a relative term. As his victory. But think that way anyway. Just temper your expectations. Acts 5 is an enormity. Very difficult New Testament passage. Everything is very difficult. Some, however, are just more onerous than others because it takes a great deal of information to even get started. And Acts 5 is one of those. So, I am telling you that everything is going to work out terrifically today. Those of you on the Internet uh, that have asked me about this, um, uh, I hope that I get you to the end of your, uh, how do I say it, uh, discouragement. So, even though it is difficult, and it is an enormous problem, Acts 5, we nevertheless have made a sizable indentation. We've hollowed out a great deal of it, if you will. And I am a highly compensated religious professional, as you know. And I have uh, proof of that. I have a 2005 four-wheel drive Suburban with 125,000 miles. And if it has gone 125,000 miles, that means it's really good and, and valuable. It's, it's, uh, it's evidence. It does have a protestant transmission and burnt-out seat warmers. That's what Lori just hates that. And we had it for about, what, four days and they burnt out. <laughs> it's the envy of the religious professional community, or it's not. Anyway, I realize that many of you are once again muttering and murmuring about Acts 5. You say these kinds of things to me. What does Acts 5 and slavery have to do with the book of Joel, the implication that I have succumbed to the wishes of the vast Internet audience in order to curry favor and fame. In other words, I'm diverting into Acts 5 and Exodus 21, not because of their relationship to the book of Joel, but because Joel and Acts 5 and Exodus 21 have no immediate correlation. Uh, and, and I'm doing that only to delay past February 3rd, which is the annual CADS. You don't know what that means. That means Church Attendance Devastation Sunday. That's what we're up against. Uh, it's a wave. And I respond to all of that accusation made against me that I'm just uh, uh, dancing in place in order to get past CADS Sunday or CADS days. CADS Sunday is a redundancy, isn't it? I say Peshaw to all of that. Allow me now to present a mere fraction of uh, what would be the exculpatory, exculpatory evidence on my behalf. Joel, how did we get here? I guess would be what I should call this. Joel contains prominently the sign of the sun and the moon. The sign of the sun and the moon is given by God on the fourth day, or if you will, after three days and three nights, I have the sign of the sun and the moon. So that means that I have the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah is three days and three nights. Lazarus is, as you know, if you've been here, is the first sign of Jonah, his resurrection. 
It was after four days. Christ's resurrection is the second sign of Jonah. Lazarus was rejected by the religious leadership of Israel, the elders, the rulers, the priests, the Sadducees. Jesus Christ himself, the second sign of Jonah, likewise his resurrection is resurrected by the priesthood, the elders, the Sadducees, the chief priests, everybody, their families. He's after three days. Lazarus is after four days. That makes seven days. I told you that all sevens go back to the creation seven. In this case, this is the the millennial sevens, the thousand year seven periods, each seven, each thousand year period totaling seven. The third sign, and you all know this, I'm just repeating it for those who have missed for a while in the Internet audience that likes me to review these kinds of things is uh, the two the two witnesses are the third sign of Jonah. And Israel repents at their resurrection. And the rejection of the Messiahship of Christ begins its ending for the nation of Israel. The point being, yea, a point. The sign of the sun and the moon is inexorably linked to the sign of Lazarus. And Lazarus is, at- is attached to the weeping and groaning of God. Specifically, God weeps at the weeping. Does that make sense? Do you remember that? God weeps at the weeping of the Jewish funeral mourners and Mary, of Mary and Martha. I will not make my obligatory Mary and Martha joke here. (laughs) Much to the delight of Mary and Martha. I did it anyway, didn't I? I did, yeah. I just thought I'd point that out in case it. <sighs> the Jewish funeral mourners and Mary are in tremendous agony over the death of Lazarus, and Christ asked them a series of questions as well as to Martha. <sighs> and the responses that he gets causes him to groan and weep. So he is weeping at the Jewish, they're religious people, these funeral mourners. They show up at every, they're hired, they show up at every funeral. So he's weeping at their responses, their questions to him, and their statements that they say before him. And he is God himself. He does not. Jesus never weeps for himself, nor did he weep for Lazarus. God weeps for the lost. He weeps for the dead, as he defines dead. God rejoices for the saved, for the living, as he defines living. So, I have this connection between Joel and Lazarus, uh, that is, uh, and Christ and the two witnesses, I think that is very important for you to grasp, to keep going. Now, in comes Judges 16, 1 through 4. That is Samson tearing off the gates that is imprisoning the slaves, if you will, the captives of the city, carrying it 40 miles up a hill and throwing it into a valley. And he rips it up by the foundation. It is an extraordinarily heavy thing. It is a miraculous event from a man who I believe was barely five foot tall. I think the evidence is clear that he was a tiny man that did not show any physical evidences of of supernatural physical strength, which is why he was such a mystery to the enemies of Israel and such a uh, a monument for the Jews. But he does that. He tears those gates off and those people, uh, are they escape. And that is where slavery is defined by God, if you wish. Or more accurately, how God begins to describe slavery. And slavery is prominent, as God defines it, at Acts 5. In other words, a Pharisee and his wife are standing before God and lying to him. That's what Acts 5, um, that is the context of it. And the consequence of that lie is swift physical death. Notice how I phrased that. I did not phrase it unintentionally. It's physical death, and it is swift. Instant. Thus, the extraordinary question, the the preeminent question, if you will, is set. What exactly is the lie of Ananias and Sapphira? And we're given in Acts 5, 3, something that is of 
of tremendous influence, great significance, significant, I can't speak. <coughs> Excuse me. Satan is, has proximity at X5. He's actually identified as having proximity. And that is something that cannot be ignored. Whenever Satan is mentioned in the Bible, it is never, it cannot be, omniscience makes it so that it is coincidental. Does that make sense? There is no arbitrary, oh, let's just throw Satan in here as some kind of non, um, I don't know, non, uh, out of context, just put him in. That's never happening in the Bible. Every time Satan is mentioned, he is mentioned for a purpose. He has, he has influence here. Anytime Satan is brought up and a lie is brought up, then we're at where in the Bible? We have a lie and we have Satan. That's Genesis 3, isn't it? Satan lies at Genesis 3 about existence, the origin and scope of existence, and consciousness. In other words, he's lying about the existence of existence. Satan lies about God being the author of lies. He actually, here is a lie that he has and he projects it onto God and says, God is the author of my lie and therefore God is the origin. He is the one that has originated evil. And Satan lies about God being unwilling or unable to interfere with sin or disinterested or disengaged by his own will. In other words, God uh, walks away from his creation. That's a very popular view, is it not? They call it apathyism. In other words, God is apathetic to his creation. And he does not uh, have a presence here. He has moved away. Let the earth go to its own natural devices and end. Not involved. Put this in another form. If that were true about God, God cannot judge sin. And that, of course, is something that Satan says as well. It's part of his lying, uh, fivefold lie of Satan. He's disqualified from presiding over sin, Satan says, of God, because he has not the goodness or the character. He's the author of sin. And nor does he have the uh, omniscience. Uh, and he does, therefore, he does not have the ability. So he does not have the ability. He does not have the uh, omniscience. He does not have the willingness. He does not have the goodness or a combination of in any of those. You can choose from those, and now you can apply that to who? Where? Acts 5. So, did Ananias lie about belief? Did Ananias lie about what he believed about himself and about God? So, all of those things are in play here. So those are uh, dims the choices. Good, evil, disengaged, unable, character, belief are the combination of, of all of those things that I gave you. What was the lie of Ananias and Sapphira? In other words, um, to resolve all of that, you have to recognize it as a, as a discussion on freedom and slavery. Eventually. My point being, yea, another point, that's three already, and we haven't even got to page four. That's fantastic. That's a record, I believe. It's three points in three pages. We might have to remember this time. Let's have a moment of silence. My, my point is, is that Acts 5 fits into the discussion of slavery and Acts and freedom and therefore Joel and therefore uh, where we are now today. So let's take another big run at this. I said last week as best I could that to understand Acts, or maybe the week before, to understand Acts 5 conclusively, in totality, you must go back to the underpinnings of Acts 5, which is Genesis 14. That's Melchizedek, 
Satan and Abraham together. Melchizedek, as you know, it's my position that it is impossible to have any other view of Melchizedek other than he is Christ himself, the pre-incarnate Christ, because Melchizedek in Hebrews 7 is defined as being outside of time. He has no beginning. That means he is outside of time. The only person who is outside of time that is manifested is Jesus Christ himself. So I have Christ, I have Satan, and I have Abraham. And now, immediately, you should recognize that Acts 5, I have Christ, Satan, and Peter. So I have the three there. I have the three in Genesis 14. If Abraham had chosen to be made rich by Satan, what would have been the fate of the people? If you remember from when we did this, Satan is there in front of Abraham and says, Will you choose the possessions or will you give and give me the people? And Abraham says, No, I will not give you the people. I will not take the, the possessions or the goods or the riches. If Abraham had chosen, and he says so on the basis that I don't want anyone to ever be able to say of me that Satan made me rich. If Abraham had chosen to be made rich by the Satan, by Satan, what would Satan have done to the people? What would he have done? What does Satan always do to people? He puts them into captivity. He enslaves them. As God defines slavery. Obviously, get, being given riches by Satan will result in doom for the person who does so and the people he has any contact with effectively. I made this comment earlier in my so-called career when I was really very young and recognizing that my fate was a 2005 Suburban. I recognized that quite quickly in life, that I was not going to choose money over time. Does that make any sense to you? Because that's ultimately the choice. I could work really, really hard, and I did for a while, hour upon hour upon hour. And what did I do with the money? That's right, I invested it in my real estate business. Did you buy my book, How to Make a $100 in Real Estate, over 50 years? It's now 50. I used to say 25, but I've... I'm a lot older now. So all of that time that I put into trying to amass my great fortune ended up being, uh, well, the apex of that is the 2005 Suburban. Without doubt, the greatest vehicle we've ever owned, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely right. We bought it off of a Mexican drug cartel. I, I, that's, that's pretty much the truth. Uh, that's how that's how we got it. Uh, we actually went to a dealership, and I looked at the uh, the car fox or whatever it's called, uh, and it was made in Mexico, and it was stolen. So I keep wondering who will ever come and get it from me. Uh, <laughs> but my point being is, is that I recognized very young that I could spend a lot of time pursuing wealth, or I could spend a lot of time not pursuing wealth. So I ended up doing the latter. Should have put a little time in there for retirement. Uh, didn't do a very good job there, but so be it. But the back to Genesis 14. This is the girding of Acts 5. That discussion over will you take possessions and goods over the people? Will you be able to say that Satan made you rich? And why would anyone choose that? Why would uh, the actual question is why does almost everyone choose that? What's the number one thing that people want now today based on our culture? Look at your internet. What do they want? They want fame, absolutely. Why do they want fame? Because fame will get them what? Riches. What is probably the greatest curse you can give to someone? Fame. It is, a, it is so destructive. But look at the culture today. Look at the young people. They all want to be famous. They want likes and clicks and blah, blah, blah. And they always check it. Fascinating to me to see. I had a young man I'm checking out of Home Depot because we're buying mastic and such for the countertop that we're putting in. 
Uh, one of the things that gives me the greatest hum- humor is these flipper flop or flop or flip shows where the people, they put aside uh, uh, $500 in three days in order to rebuild a bathroom. Just kills me. I just can't. It's just the most amusing shows I've ever seen. <laughs> Watch it. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> For those on the internet, I have, I almost identified him and I know better to do that. That there's a contractor here. He says he charges you people that think that way double. Uh, it is hilarious. Uh, it just, it just can't be done and it can't be done right. It's just a disaster. You put in a particle board vanity and you just tear it out two days later because it's just junk. Do you know I should pick on Home Depot and Lowe's up here in Alaska? They will not sell you a plywood box cabinet or a solid wood cabinet. They have none in stock. The only thing you can buy is particle board. And do you think I'm kidding when I tell you the particle board won't last three weeks? It won't. But yet they sell them by the boatload. What's that? Well, no one wants to wait anymore. No one wants to go to a cabinet maker. No one wants to order an actual cabinet. I recognize it takes time to get it to Alaska, but at least it'll last more than a month. Where was I? I have proposed, as you know, that Ananias and Sapphira are components of a plot to kill Peter. Conceived and activated by the high priest that shares the same name with Ananias. That is not coincidental. I think those kinds of, of imp- pieces of information are critical. As we know about the Pharisees, there, if nothing else, they are always consistent. In other words, if they have operational success, they continue with the program. They don't deviate. If it worked here, it's going to keep working. So whatever you saw them do at Christ, which was, they thought, fantastic. They saw great success there, right? They arrested him. They executed him as far as they knew. They didn't know it was God. They didn't know it was the Messiah. So they think, wow, we win. We got rid of him. So that worked. So they go back to the same committee and they all vote the same way. Here's Peter causing tremendous turmoil. Chaos. So you'd expect the plan to be the same. That's why I say that it is obvious to me that Ananias and Sapphira, again, are elements of a plot to capture and kill the apostles. And that's why you have to also, you don't have to, that's why I would recommend that you look at Gethsemane when you're looking at Acts 5, because I have the Judas kiss, and here at Acts 5 I have the actions of Ananias. I think they are not just comparable, but necessarily so. Anywho, this leads us to my favorite Old Testament military officer. It's a fantastic story. It's the third captain. It's 2 Kings chapter 1. Uh, which Second Kings chapter 1 lays down uh, just like Genesis 14 does for Acts 5. Second Kings 1 gives us, um, I'll make a 1 there, I guess. Second Kings 1 gives us the foundation of all of Second Kings. Second Kings chapter 1 establishes the cause of what follows. Therefore, Second Kings chapter 1, critical, crucial. To say Second uh, Kings chapter 6. I told you last week, I think, I hope I did, that Second Kings chapter 6 and Genesis 14 gets you to Acts 5. Now I'm saying to you, Second Kings 1 gets you to Second Kings 2. Just one example. You remember from last week, I have the woman that starts screaming at the king about eating children. Very suspicious story. A very suspicious woman. That makes no sense. If it makes no sense, be suspicious. But also, on your own, take it from me, go to 2 Kings 8. Here you have Elisha. Here you have Elisha. Here you have Elijah. Compare them. Look at the similarities that are there. Ask, why are they so similar? Uh, in Second King 8, I have the murder of the king of Syria by his trusted servant. And Elisha 
this is where Elisha weeps. I have the weeping of Elisha. If I have the weeping of Elisha, where am I? I'm at the weeping. Elisha is a picture, a type of Christ. If he's weeping, then I have to find where God weeps. I have a couple of places where God weeps, don't I? What's the first place in the Bible where God shows signs of of sorrow? Well, I'm going to tell you, Lazarus is absolutely correct. That's exactly in the New Testament, but you're headed for Genesis 6. He's sorry there. Sorrowful. But I have in Second Kings 8, Elisha weeps because he knows the evil that's going to be wrought by the servant who will seize the king. In other words, the king has a trusted servant. And he sends that servant to Elisha. And Elisha says, you're going to do tremendous evil. And you're going to seize the crown. How does Elisha know that? Because Elisha has been giving a picture of Christ's omniscience. So, here, I'm going to John 11. When I'm in John 11, I'm in three days and three nights, a sign of Jonah, and I'm on my way to Joel. And I'm on my way to Genesis 1. That's how it all fits together, in my view. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's read uh, 2 Kings 1. I think that it is... uh, the most of all of the all of the elements of this of the book of kings this is the one that i gravitate to as most as often as i can so here we are second kings 1 we're going to go through 17 verses so it's going to take a little while moab rebelled against israel after the death of ahab oh that's important ahab is dead who's ahab I have a man that's dead. Very important to note that. Now, Ahaziah, very, very barely got it out, fell through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and was injured. So he sent messengers. I have a king sending messengers and said to them, go inquire of Baal Zebub. Baal Zebub. Next week, of course, is the celebration. As you know of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this injury. So I have a king that is in, who has mortal injuries and he wants to know. And where is he going to go to find out if he will be, if he will live? But the angel of the Lord. Now some say, no, this is not the angel of the Lord. This is just a angel of the Lord. But I think the evidence is overwhelming. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet these messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, It is because there is no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? So he asked him a question. Then say, you shall not come down from the bed in which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Oh, my goodness. I have a list coming. But if all I put on the list is surely die and Ahab, you're on your way. Do you think God, that's God, that is Christ himself. Do you think he knows Genesis 2.17? He wrote it. And when the messengers returned to him, he said to them, returned to the king. When the messengers returned to the king, he said to them, I'm adding that in, why have you come back? So they said to the king, a man came up to meet us and said to us, go return to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord, it is because, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baal Zebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. There it is again. In case you didn't notice it the first time. 
Then he said to him, what kind of man was it that came up to meet you and told you these words? So they answered him, a hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. Now, this hairy thing, if you wish to investigate, is called the mantle of Elijah, which is his cloak. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. So the king of Israel that is dying knew the Samarian kingdom versus the Judah kingdom, knew that this was Elijah the Tishbite. Then the king sent to him, sent after Elijah, a captain of 50 with his 50 men. So I have a king sending a captain after Elijah with 50 men. Now, why is he doing this? He wants to be nice to him. This is a military force. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 and his 50 men. So the captain, he went up to him and there he was sitting on top of a hill. And he spoke to him, man of God, the king has said, come down. So Elijah answered and said to the captain of 50, if, if I am a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. What do I have here? Instant physical death. I have a captain sent to kill Elijah. And his 50 men. Then he, the king, sent to him, Elijah, another captain of 50 with his 50 men. And he, the captain, the second captain, answered and said to him, Elijah, man of God, thus has the king said, come down now. So Elijah answered and said to him, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Again, he, a king, sent my favorite military officer in the Old Testament. I've named him Steve. Because I so delight in this guy. So he sent Captain Steve... With his 50 men. And the third captain of 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah. So that tells me something. The king knew something. And the military was prepared for it. How did he know that the first 50 and the second 50 are all dead? Because they're up on a hill. He's got to go up on the hill to see Elijah. How many, we'll get to that in a minute, I'm getting ahead, I always do. He came and fell on his knees before Elijah and pleaded with him and said to him, Man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be present, precious in your sight. What has he done? He has switched allegiances, hasn't he? And the angel of, of the Lord, oh, I'm sorry, look, fire has come down from heaven and burned up the first two captains of 50 with their 50s, but let my life now be present, precious in your sight. So obviously the third captain, Captain Steve, saw Captain 1 and Captain 2 and a 100 men be consumed. He saw it. So ask the question, how did he see it? And the king is sending him. So where is the king? How's this happening? In phone? Text message? Book tube? And the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him, Captain Steve. Do not be afraid of him, the king. So he arose and went down to with him to the king. Then he said to him, the king, thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baal Zebub, the God of Ekron, it is because there is, is it because there is no God in Israel to acquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So the king died. 
Okay, here's the list really fast. I can't put it on the board, but let's just... Okay, I'll put some of it on the board. This is really important that you begin to recognize these components. They are all throughout the Bible. Is it an accident? No, it is telling you the Bible is a singular unit that must be read as one. So Ahab is dead. Ahab dead. What's the obvious question? Is Jezebel dead? No, Jezebel is alive. Uh, let me put those together so I don't run out of... So I have the husband is dead, but the wife is still alive. Where else do I have a dead husband and an alive wife? Do I have to help you here? Good. Ahab dies before Jezebel. <laughs> hey, the king of Israel is dying. I've got a dying king, an old king, who fell. He's in a bed. The king's dying. He's the king of northern Israel. And the king sends for the priests of super Baal-zebub. To inquire about what? Death. He thinks they're going to give him information about his death. And the angel, however, intervenes. This is Christ. Why is he here? It's got to be something incredibly important. Because this is God. The creator God is here. And then we have that incredible question. Is it because you don't think there is a God in Israel? Is that why you're doing this? You don't think God is in Israel? And they tell him to come down. They call him a man of God. So, man of God. And that becomes incredibly significant. Man of God. And the man of God is a type of who? He's a type of the God-man. Jesus God. Acts 2, it's all one word. No hyphen. If I am a man of God, in other words, if God is here, let fire come down and consume you. If, if fire and fire came. And then another captain. I have a second captain. Come down now. If I am a man of God, fire. Fire came. Third captain. He just says, you are a man of God. There's no if. Please let my life and the life of these be precious in your sight. And the angel of God comes again. I've skipped a few things, right? So I have two comings of the angel of God in this story. That's probably not, not significant. Don't pay any attention to that. And he says, because you have inquired of Baal, which is a statement that there is no God in Israel, you shall surely die. Genesis 2.17, and the king dies. The king dies upon the words of Elijah. You see how this is connected to Acts 5. I hope so. You shall surely die is a statement from the Lord God Almighty tying 2 Kings 1 to the tree of Genesis. That's Adam and the woman. That's Satan. That's Genesis 3 as you know. Baal-zebub is a name of Satan. It means the prince of the demonic realm, the prince of death. The king, the dying king, sought out the priests of Baal-zebub, the brood of Satan, to request their opinions on his 
death? Is it impending, imminent or not? The king obviously believed that the priests of Satan had knowledge about his death. They could, they could give him information. That is a grievous error because they do not have that kind of knowledge. You have to be what to have that kind of knowledge outside of time. That's right. You have to be God himself. It is the God of Israel, the God in Israel, the God of creation, who knows who will live and who will die. How does he know that? Because he wrote it in his book. It's called the Lamb's Book of Life. Satan and his fathers have no such book. They know nothing. Here's a couple of things that are valuable to recognize. Revelation 20:15. Where can I put it? I'll throw it up here. Revelation 20:15 says whoever whosoever was not found in the lamb's book of life was cast where into the lake of fire. So you see this connectivity now. The first captain addressed Elijah as a man of God. You know what the word he used was? Elohim. Where is Elohim in the Bible? First place it's mentioned, Genesis 1-1. The triune God of Genesis 1-1, Genesis 4-22. Elijah answers, if I am the man of God, the creator of life, because the man of Elohim, Elohim is the creator of life. If I am the man of Elohim, the creator of life, the author of the book of life, let Fire come down and consume you and your 50 men. Fire and death now are linked, aren't they? Just as they are in Revelation 20:15. Death as God defines death. Again, this is physical death that's being used as a demonstration, if you will. It's not necessarily individually applicable. I hope that makes sense. That's really for the Internet. Be very slow to decide who is in the lake of fire. How come? How come you can't say that guy is in the lake of fire? Bill the cow mentioned uh, what uh, New York City is doing in the pregame here. That is as awful uh, an occurrence as can be imagined. And he pointed out that they cheered. Thank you for telling me that I'm out of time. I'm not really, am I? Okay. That usually means stop. What you do? But no, now that means a number, huh? So I have ten more hours to go. Wow, that's great. That's fantastic. Let the record show that the buffet has caught fire. Okay. New York is celebrating the death of children. Celebrating it. Lighting up buildings. I would advise you to not go there. That is profound, evil wickedness. How can you get more upside down than that? I don't know what to say. Fire and death are linked as God defines death. But be slow for you to say that that person is going to the lake of fire. You don't know. How do I know that you don't know? You're not the author of the book of life, nor is he tells you you don't know. He says to you, don't harvest. You're not a harvester. You spread seed. I will send my angels to harvest. You don't know what you're doing. He doesn't come right out and call us stupid, but you can see that that's what he's, yeah, okay. The third captain, he looks at the first two captains. He's got to be there, right? He's got to be there. He sees the first two captains go up in flames. Thank you for your absolute tepid response for that. um, Coming through for me again. (laughs) <laughs> At least you were here. You've been wandering around the, trying to hide from your baby, weren't you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> anyway. 
That's very funny. Can I say that on the internet? No, I can't. I can't do it. <laughs> but let the audience know that I have a newborn poop joke. Came from the came from my so-called congregation here. Anyway, where am I? As a professional, I will know. The third captain sees the first two captains all dead and their men dead. What does he do? Just imagine the second captain. But at least the third looks at that and goes, are you kidding? You're ordering me to go up there? Have you seen this? The second captain, is, as I point out here, is literally insane. He knows he's dead. He still goes forward to be annihilated. Where in the Bible does somebody who has to know they're going to be wiped out go in front of God and get wiped out? Where am I now? Fire gets them. They're gone. They're disintegrated. Two-edged sword takes them out. Who follows those orders? kind of idiot does that? Third captain, Captain Steve, ain't doing it. But the second captain, again, madness. The first captain, we'll give him a little bit of slack here. He's the one who proves that Elijah is the man of Elohim, Genesis 1-1. He proves it. Second captain's completely nuts. Has a darkened mind. What about those 50 guys? They are looking at certain death. If you follow any kind of military history, what's the number one way they got people in the military to charge into a hopeless situation? What's the number one way they did it? Do you know? They said, if you don't go, we'll shoot you in the back right here. Go and die. Civil War was unbelievable. Those kinds of things. There's a wonderful movie made about a, an African battalion or regiment in the Civil War who knew they were all going to die when anyway that was an honorable decision this is this is an absolute madness here but obviously somebody is there to make that second group go notice the king sends the second captain and his 50 to his death I believe the king knows that they're going to die Sends them anyway. He's got to know. Second ca- captain and his 50 will perish. Everybody knew. The third captain knew. Everybody, the second captain knew. He still went. And the king is willing to keep sacrificing his captains and their 50 men. So what's the obvious question? How many captains and men would the king, the follower of Satan, how many would he send to their death? How many has he sent to their death? The answer is equally obvious, isn't it? He's going to send as many or is going to go. What is the plan of Satan? What is his number one plan? Antichrist. Kill as many of his followers as he can. And make God kill them. Because when God kills them, what does God do? God weeps. Not on the board anymore. Satan knows that. But the third captain rebelled against the king, fell to his knees, begged the man of God for his life and the life of his young men. And this is, a, is the great lesson here. It is wise to beg the angel of God, the God-man, for life, for mercy. Because the God-man, Jesus Christ, is life, is mercy, the life. He's the only life. There's no life but him. And this man has this incredible thing. Man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be present in your sight. And man of God in my Bible is capitalized because they recognize that this is being said to the God man. God man, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be present, precious in your sight. If you're going to pray, that is as good as it gets. Okay, last Sunday I submitted 2 Kings 6 as a source, a complement, an Old Testament connection to Acts 5 on the basis that Elisha, as with Peter, knew that the ruler, the chief priest, Ananias, the chief priest, had sent a man 
an assassin. In the case of Peter, he knew the name of him. In the case of Elisha, he knew that the ruler, the king, had sent an assassin, the, an officer described upon whom the king leans. So it's logical that the officer came with an armed escort. So I have a similar situation, don't I? Peter knew that someone was coming and knew the name of him and knew that he also had an armed escort. Elisha was with his elders. Peter was with his apostles. Both knew what would happen before it was to happen. Both knew who would come, when they would come, and why they're coming. In both cases, the officer, in both cases, Acts 5 and 2 Kings 6, the close conspirator dies. Now with Elisha, the first two captains of the king, those who demand that the man of God come down now, instantly consumed by fire. Instant death, as I said. But mercy is given to the third captain and his men. The men of the third captain live. Obviously, I'm connecting Acts 5 with 2 Kings 1, aren't I? Because of the instant death aspect, the presence of Satan, Baal Zebub, the lie of Baal Zebub. As to who will live and who will die. The book of life, the lake of fire, all of those things give me this connectivity between these two passages in Scripture. Second Kings 1 establishes the foundations of Second Kings 6, Second Kings 8. Second Kings 1 is overwhelmingly referring to Satan at Genesis 2.17. And all that remains now is to place these pieces that I hope you're seeing correct correctly into the slots into the positionings that they belong and if i am right and the audience said duh in unison loudly as they have been trained by the amount of buffet that we have and there is no other conclusion it's not that i'm right duh but there really isn't there is a purposed, an omniscient correspondence corresponding between the 50 men of the third captain and the young men of Ananias and Sapphira. In other words, the author of the Bible, who is outside of time, omniscient, omnipresent, omnibenevolent, omni uh, which one did I leave out? Omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, omnibenevolent God. He's the author of the Bible. He placed literally true actual people and events into his word in order for these to be seen as parts of a whole. Find all the parts and you figure out the whole. If the Bible is constructed this way, and again, the evidence is clearly so, then it is designed for us to evaluate and assemble everything that we find. The order from the from the word there's an order from Jesus here he is the word of god himself he says search john 5:39 search the scriptures they are testifying of me. Now, some people think the search is, he's saying, you search the scriptures. He's not. That is a command form of that word. It is a direct order from God himself. Search the scriptures. Find that which testifies of me, because it all testifies of me. Put it together. That's how he designed it. We are to place scripture aside scripture. It's the only way that you're ever going to solve anything. Go find the other pieces. They will blend together and you will see it all come out. You'll find all of the intricate little components. So Acts 5 sends us to 2 Kings 1, 2 Kings 6, 2 Kings 8, Genesis 14, and vice versa. And to separate and call out Acts 5, call, C-U-L-L, and attempt to solve it as if it is an isolated, singular um, Situation, that's to guarantee a disoriented conclusion, which is almost all you ever read on Acts 5. So quick extra credit question, bonus, it's free. What do you suppose was the fate of the eventual fate of the third captain and his 50 men? He switched allegiance. What's that mean? He did it knowing. He knew he was going to be, if he went up, if he maintained his, uh, uh, subordination to the king, he's going to be consumed in fire. That seemed like a really bad idea at the time, I would think. So he switches allegiance. What made him switch allegiance? Just self-preservation temporarily 
That's not what he says. He says, let my life and the life of my men, my 50 servants of, of yours, be precious. If your life is precious to God, what is that? That's a darn strong place to be. Were they hunted down and killed by the priests of Baal Zebub? And remember, Elijah, his validation that he is the man of Elohim is very similar to Moses in Numbers 16.35. Moses is constantly in peril from the forces within Israel that opposed the God in Israel. They're always trying to kill Moses. And Elijah and John the Baptist, both Moses and Elijah are validated by fire from heaven. And Elijah and John the Baptist are plainly joined by Scripture. Absolutely no doubt about that. Even identified, uh, John the Baptist has the same coat. He's got Elijah's coat. That is open and no, and without controversy, no dispute. John the Baptist was what? How'd it go for John? He's beheaded. By who? A king. Who'd caused it? A woman. The daughter of the king's wife. Does that sound familiar? Of course it does. True, literal people and historical truths selected by God and placed into his word. In any event, the third captain and his 50 men willfully, knowingly choose to rebel against the pagan Baal Zebub king of Israel, choosing to bow before the God that is in Israel, accepting the prospects of physical death in exchange for eternal life. And thus the question of the young men of Acts 5 arises, because they do what? They carry out the body, bury the body, wrap the body, wrap, carry, and bury the body of Ananias. The situation looks astonishingly similar. The deaths of Ananias before Peter was an undeniable demonstration from Elohim, the God in Israel. He's in Israel. And you came to take out Peter. And you are exposed and die instantly. The third captain... And his and his men, they have actually the angel of the Lord, Christ is standing there. And he tells, that's a great comfort, a pretty big advantage. This is the guy with the fireballs. And he says, Elijah, go with the captain. Don't fear this king. Okay. We're going. I believe it is logical. Assume the king dies, as I said. As Ananias dies upon the hearing of the words of Elijah, uh, 2 Kings 1.17 and Acts 5, upon hearing the words of Peter, death, death. Therefore, allowing the captain some maneuverability, right? Once that king's dead, we've got to get a new king. i got a chance to make a run for it. So those 50 men. Where would you go if you were in his position? Wherever Elijah goes, that's my new job. Stick with this guy. He's got a pretty cool thing here. The point being, yay, finally another point. The congruencies between Acts 5 and 2 Kings 1 and 2 Kings 6 and 2 Kings 8, when you've got those, you've got the ability to make conclusions that I believe will lead you to accuracy. For example, at Acts 5, Levites are converting, they're believing, and they're selling land. How did the Levites acquire the land? Well, the system in place, what one system, is if a leper is identified, the leper then got banished. Who identified you as a leper? Well, the people who confiscate the land from you and your possessions. And they get what? Really rich. They go, you know, that looks like a white spot. You're gone. So where do they send you? To the lepers who have what? Leprosy. What happens to you? You have leprosy, self-fulfilling. Works great. I got your land. I got your possessions. Who's made me rich? Satan has made them rich. The inevitability of the process determined the income. So how much did the Levites that sold their land and put the money at the feet of Peter and the apostles, how much do you suppose those Levites sold that land for? But uh, imagine yourself in the place of these Levites 
Peter and the apostles were demonstrating amazing things, essentially fire, signs and wonders. Only the apostles could do this. No one else could do it. Only the apostles. And they're demonstrating, essentially, as I said, fire from heaven, i.e. God is in Israel. And what happens to these Levites? I got thousands of Levites all of a sudden believe. And what do they do? They start divesting themselves of their land. And they lay it at the feet, the proceeds at the feet of the apostles. How fast do you suppose they sold it? Did they wait for the appraisal? What's the price? Did they get a comparative market analysis? Did they put a sign in front? Land for sale. What did they do? They saw the fire, didn't they? And they got rid of the land because they read numbers. They knew they weren't supposed to have the land in the first place because they did not want it said of them that Satan made them rich. Why is that such a problem? Doesn't seem to be a problem today. I got the richest people in every city are the professional clergy. It's a, it's a horrifying. What do you think the chief priest at the time, Ananias, the chief priest, how do you think he responded to these Levites selling land? And they're dumping it. You know they are. What's that doing to the price of land? Who bought the land? Once the word got out, Levites are selling land and, and houses. They're selling it. How much do you think they sold it for? I mean, really. And who do you think they sold it to? Consider that. Did they give it to the chief priests or did they give it to common people? Who were they supposed to give it to? Who could they not sell it to? Chief, the priests. Peter even says to Ananias, you're a priest, you're a Levite, and you bought the land that you sold yourself. So you still got it. You're still in violation. How much pressure is, is this causing, this situation causing for the priests of Ananias, who refuse to sell, who want their riches. Peter and John are in the temple. That's Solomon's portico. That's Acts 3.11 and Acts 5.12. I have Simon, Solomon's portico, barely can say it, is the parentheses or the bookends of this context. There's a captain of the temple in Acts 4.1, and Peter and John are, were, were, as Peter and John are speaking, the captain of the temple is ordered to seize them. I have Sadducees greatly disturbed because they're talking about resurrection. Sadducees didn't like that. They don't like resurrections. I have Ananias, the chief priest. I have the rulers, the elders, the scribes, Caiaphas, the family members. They're all listed, and there's tremendous turmoil. They call it great, a, a great anxiety, if you will. And all of that brings us to slavery. Yay, he did it. Why isn't slavery prohibited in the Ten Commandments? That's for Sherry. Slavery is an awful, awful thing. It is control. It is control to death. It is awful. There's a choice in the Bible, isn't there? Freedom or slavery? Who has who has freedom? Isn't it interesting that the people that have slavery think that the Christians have slavery? Don't. Back to this. Why isn't slavery prohibited in the Ten Commandments? You see, this Acts 5 is built upon Genesis 14. Don't allow Satan to say he made you rich. You've got Pharisees. You've got rich. You've got camels, eyes of needles. You've got all of these factors now. Why not? Were the priests, the rulers, the elders, the family of the high priest, did Satan make them rich? Yes, he did. Were they, are they the brood or the sons of Satan? Yes, they are. If Satan had been given the people by Abraham, what would have been those people's end? What would Satan have done to them and what would have been Abraham's destiny? Notice that Abraham can willfully choose and Abraham rejects the lie of Satan and Abraham takes the tithe and he puts it at the feet of Melchizedek. (coughs) Then could it be said that Melchizedek made him rich? Melchizedek is God. He already owns everything. He's the possessor of all things, heaven and earth. He's the angel of the Lord. He's the God-man. He's Jesus God. He's the prince king of life. So your assignment is now before you. It's really not that difficult. I think you. I've given you everything you all need. 
All you have to do now is connect all the pieces and you can figure out what actually happened at Acts 5. You'll have it all. Because it's going to be given it to you in 2 Kings 1, 2 Kings 6, and Genesis 14. 2 Kings 8. So just connect Ananias the Levite. What you do, do you remember these things? I'm done, really. I'm now just stalling to get past February 3rd. You ever see these things in, in school? You'll have something here. You'll have A and you'll have something here. I would call it Ananias. And then over in column, over here, you'll have another column, one, and you'll have something over there. And let's just put, um, Captain. Captain one. And then I'll have another thing. And I'll have, um, I'll have Sapphira. And over here, I'll have Jezebel. Okay? And you're supposed to make connections. How many of you think Ananias goes to Jezebel? That's what we call F minus. How many of you think uh, Sapphira goes to a captain? That's what we call G minus. Okay? You can do that. Just make your list and start doing this. And then pretty soon you will see it all unfold for you. But you have to have the lists. Which is why list makers going to list. There's one thing I can give you. Man of God, please let my life and the life of my children be yours and precious in your sight. You can't get any better than that. Especially if you have a new baby.